right, Transit Church, good morning, good to see you all again. Go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to Exodus. We're continuing in our series in Exodus, and we've got uh, two chapters that we're working through today, and so instead of reading uh, any part of it, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we'll get to working on uh, unpacking those. Join me in prayer. Father, we're grateful for the day. Thank you for the gathering of your church. This is, uh, this is one of those great get-tos, not a have-to. And so we're here uh, voluntarily. We're here not out of compulsion. Um, we're here because we, we need you. So that's our confession this morning. Uh, we admit to you and to ourselves that we need uh, each other. And, uh, and Lord, I pray that we would be that, a church family that uh, expresses its needs and that our needs as a people, as a church, uh, as believers, followers of Jesus, will be met as we gather and do the one another of Scripture today. Today we uh, we here we are here to uh, to honor you, to uh, listen to your word, to be challenged by it, to be changed by it. And God, we pray that as we uh, unpack the text about the Ten Commandments, this grand passage that many of us have heard about, seen videos about, and perhaps even memorized uh, when we were young, God, that, w- that we would see its relevance for us as believers today. And I pray that in Christ's name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. So if you're with us for the first time, we have been uh, in a series uh, surveying the book of Exodus, and we are focusing on the theme of redemption. And uh, what we've seen so far is how God himself has taken a body of people, the nation of Israel, and, and rescued them. He's delivered them. He saved them, and and what God saves them from uh, is 430 years of slavery in Egypt. But of course, when God saves Israel there and and frees them from the bondages they were uh, were living under, uh, that's not the end of their story. Actually, there's, I mean, that's just really where the story begins, because after God sets them free, God leads them into the wilderness, and we'll see that he continues to both deliver and provide for them. He rescues them firstly through the chaotic waters of the, of the Red Sea. I mean, God brings them to a point really where they're stuck between the, the Red Sea on one side, impassable body of water, and a raging Egyptian army behind them. God parts the sea, causing the walls of the river to, to, you know, to, to go up uh, just miraculously. And then after they pass through on dry ground, he decimates the Egyptian army, their actual uh, slave masters. And so, and then after that amazing act, what we saw last week in Exodus 16 is that God begins to, to lead Israel as they travel through the wilderness. And life gets a little bit hard. And when things get hard, sometimes we begin to gripe and complain. And the Israelites did that. They did that primarily because uh, although they're no longer in slavery, they were out in the middle of the desert, perhaps a million, two million of them. They had nothing to eat. They had nothing to drink, and they turned not only against Moses, they turned against God himself. And as they complained, God listened, and he graciously uh, delivers them again. He provides for their needs. He opens up the heavens, and he causes with the dew uh, a, a wafer-like substance to fall on the ground, such that when the dew dried up every day, uh, these wafers would be on the ground. We're told that they had a sweet, sweet-like taste to them. And they were to pick them up and to gather them as much as they needed for, fa- for each family and use it as bread. Not only does God do that, so he provides bread for them, 
uh, but he also brought, causes the wind to blow in and causes quail to come into their camp at night, and so that's the meat that they would eat as well. And so we see throughout their time in the wilderness, God continues to, to, to do gracious things uh, for Israel over and over. Today we're looking at uh, chapters 19 and 20, which encompasses the Ten Commandments, and very likely uh, you have heard of the Ten Commandments if you have not read it in the Bible. This is one of the most well-known passages in the, in the whole Bible, and really what we should take out of the Ten Commandments is God is beginning, get, beginning to speak. He's telling Israel who he is so that they will know uh, who this God is that has delivered them and what he's done for them. But more than that, he's going to tell them what he expects of them. And he does that by giving them the law. Um, there's a lot of drama here. So as much drama as we've seen over the last three weeks from the, the, the plagues, those miracles that God uh, was forcing Pharaoh's hand to, to let Israel go, and then um, just the grand parting of the Red Sea, there is as much drama here in these two chapters because what God, because what God is going to do is he's going to put his holiness on display. God's going to display his glory on Mount Sinai for Israel to see and to hear. There's going to be smoke and lightning and thunder and the sound of a trumpet, and it's all going to be because God's glory is going to consume Mount Sinai, and they're going to experience it because of their proximity to him. And so in that, God is giving Israel the commandments from Mount Sinai. Uh, I mean, we, we know the Ten Commandments, right? And so I, we're not going to really talk a lot about the commandments. Here is what I think we should get at uh, in regards to the commandments. And this is the question for us this morning. What do these commandments tell us about God's redemption? And with that, I want to focus on five things from these two chapters. And the first is that the law does not save us. God does. The law does not save us. God does. Chapter one, verse chapter 19, verse 1. On the third Third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came to the, into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came to the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the people of uh, the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so God is on the verge in chapter 19 of giving Israel the Ten Commandments, and what he's emphasizing to them firstly is, is for them to remember. See, that word is mentioned a couple times. He's wanting them to remember primarily what he's done for them, the, 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 the sequence of getting them out of Egypt through the Red Sea to the point where they are now in the midst of the desert at Rephidim. And, and this is what he tells Moses to tell the people. He says, I want you to remember what I did to the Egyptians, how I delivered you, how I set you free those, uh, out, out of bondage. He wants them to remember how, how he brought them out. And he likens it to being taken up on the wings of an eagle. Now, just, I mean, imagine that you could get on the, perch yourself on the back of an eagle. The eagle takes off and flies up in the air. All right, so you're flying. Actually, no, you're not flying, right? The eagle's flying. You're not doing a thing, but enjoying the view. And the eagle is, is just going, doing its thing. 
and you're enjoying it. And here's what God says. He says, it's like that. If you're on the back of an eagle, you've not done any work. The eagle is the one doing the work. The eagle is the one flying. You can't take any credit for that. And in the same way, metaphorically, God is saying, remember how I brought you out. It, it was I that saved you. And God's salvation comes long before he gives them the law. Um, you've heard it said like this. Uh, there's many who say the Bible is just a list of do's and a list of don'ts. And if we're Christians, we're supposed to do the do's and avoid the don'ts. Y'all remember that? I mean, is that how, how it goes? Here's, here's what God is, is, is proving here. He's, he's presenting this. He says, even before I gave you a law, God is saying, I've already saved you. The law does not and cannot save you. And as Christians, uh, you know, we should believe the same thing that God is saying here for Israel. The, uh, the, the, the law cannot and will not save the nation of Israel, and it cannot and will not save you and me. And so sometimes we misunderstand the law, and that's one of the things that we should not do. All right, we're going to flesh it out as we keep going. Here's the second thing I want to pull from our passage. God saves you for a relationship. Look down at verse 4. Again, I won't read it, but those verses are pertinent for us here. And so God doesn't just set Israel free, then leave them on their own doings. God doesn't just say, oh, man, I know that slavery was a hard time for you. I know it sucked, but all right, you're free now, so go and just just be free. Because every time God, um, if God were to just take Israel and just let them do their own thing, we already know that that doesn't end up being the best thing for them. Look at what happens after he gets them into the wilderness, and um, they're a free people, but yet they can't, I mean, they, they end up having problems. They have the problem of getting across the Red Sea, they need God's help, they, they, they're in the middle of the wilderness at Rephidim, and they end up needing God's help again because they're a million, two million people strong, and they have no way to feed themselves. And so uh, they don't get very far without needing God's help. And even in this, we learn what, that, what God has done for us. Their story is, is our story. The way that God delivers Israel mirrors how he wants to save you and me. And the truth is, God doesn't save them, nor does he save us, to, so that we will do whatever we want. Those might sound like strange words to you. I said this two weeks ago as we were looking at Israel being set free across the Red Sea. I said, God frees us from the bondage of slavery so that we might be set free to a righteous enslavement to a holy master. Paul says it a little bit more succinctly. He says, I am subjectively submitting myself as a bond slave to Jesus. He's making himself a slave to Jesus, Jesus being his holy master. And that's what verse 4 says, uh, Moses says uh, of God, I brought you out to myself. And so God says, he saves you for a relationship that you might know him and that you might love him and worship him. And the way that God defines the relationship is through a covenant. Look at verse 5 and 6. I'll read these again. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my commandment, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God saves Israel and us for a relationship, and he defines a relationship uh, by saying it's a covenant. 
I mean, most of you here know what a covenant is. Covenants, covenants aren't foreign things to us. Think of all the things that you are a member of or uh, your, your mortgage, even your marriage. Those are ways that we covenant with each other and with other people. It's funny how we can sometimes um, buck up against when God tries to, when God not just tries, he tells us, this is what my relationship with you is going to look like. And yet, when we come to other relationships outside of God, we uh, will sub- we'll submit to those. Think of the, the couple that's uh, been dating for a while. Say it's three or four months, and uh, one of them decides, all right, so it, it's actually time for us to decide what this relationship is going to be like. I mean, are we going to just keep on going out for pizza and Coke and going to the movies, or, or is this going somewhere so that I can uh, either keep going with this or maybe go over and find somebody else? Uh, think of a married couple that's standing at the altar, and uh, a pastor like me is is helping them to get through their vows, and they're saying vows like, I will love and cherish, serve and support, and I'll do that until death does part us. No one, I guess this could happen, it probably has happened, but very few weddings do we see this happen, of a couple standing there and saying, I don't even know why I'm standing here. I'm, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to do what I want in my marriage. There's, I mean, why would I even want to covenant with you? I mean, that, that doesn't happen very often. Have any of y'all seen that happen? I hope not. Yeah, yeah. If, the, if that happens, their, uh, their premarital counseling has failed. But even in church, so when you come to a, a membership class in our church, we talk about what it means to be a covenant member of our church. And firstly, we say that's two things. Firstly, it's partnering with you, Philippians 1.5. You're identifying with our mission and vision and saying, I want, you know, yes, I'll use my gifts and uh, the, I'll use my service to further uh, this local church as a, a picture of God's, um, God's embassy in the world. But you're also saying that you covenant with us. And when you covenant, basically you're saying uh, we'll walk alongside each other, that we'll pursue holiness together, we'll serve one another to advance God's kingdom together for the good of uh, the church and the glory of the Lord. And so I think a lot of times we're comfortable saying that we are uh, in covenant with other people in relationship. But when we learn that God actually... um, sets the boundaries and puts demands on our relationship with him, sometimes we buck up against that and we say, you know what, that's not really what I want. Yeah, that's what God does with Israel. He's actually defining what the relationship looks like for him. He says to them in no uncertain terms, I've saved you, not that you would be on your own, but that you would be in relationship with me. And what the demands of that relationship look like is the H word, is holiness. Look down at verse 9. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people, uh, told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the peoples and shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. Now skip all the way down to verse 16. On the morning of the third day, there were thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. 
Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the and as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. I mean, what this passage is conveying to us is that God requires holiness. I mean, he demands it. Uh, in these verses, God is, be- to be- is beginning to describe um, what Israel's consecration looks like. And we saw that uh, uh, previously uh, a few chapters back in Exodus as he gave them a feast to celebrate and said, all right, consecrate yourselves and then celebrate this feast. And he's going to do this as well as he's getting ready to give them the Ten Commandments. But, but what's going on with God's verbiage to Moses to tell the people is he's saying, all right, so you just can't come willy-nilly, come as you are, any way you want, when you're coming into my presence. There is a, a, a standard that I demand of you. And, and God is going to describe what that looks like. And he tells Moses to define limits. And here's what the limit looks like. Moses and Aaron and them only, actually Joshua, we find out later on that Joshua sneaks himself up, tucked up underneath Moses in his cloak, and he sneaks into the presence of the Lord on Mount Sinai as well. But right here in these words, he's saying Moses and Aaron get to come up all the way on the mountain. The priests get to come to the edge of the mountain. And the people, they have to stand back at the bottom, and, and there's a barrier that's preventing them from coming up. And it even says uh, later on in, uh, in the law that don't let the animals get anywhere near it. And here's why. It's because God and his presence have consumed this mountain. And, I mean, they're seeing it. They're seeing smoke and thunder and lightning. And that is the literal glory of God as he is making himself known to those people. And because of that, he's saying, hey, you can't just come any way you want. God's, God's presence, it's a consuming fire, Hebrews 12 tells us. And because Israel's a sinful people, they just can't come into God's presence and his holiness without being consumed uh, if they come any way they want. And so here's what God says. Warn them, telling Moses to say this, warn them not to touch the mountain because my glory has consumed it. And look at these words, lest my holiness break out against them and they be destroyed. I mean, did you hear those words? I mean, those, I mean that, that sounds like God is no joke, right? In other words, God is saying, all right, so don't come flippantly to me. Don't come with your worship. Don't come with your sacrifice. Don't come with yourself uh, flippantly to me. And unfortunately, sometimes we do that. We come to God with a cursory attitude. We come trying to engage God on our terms instead of receiving him 
as he is. We try to do it our own way instead of saying, Lord, what would you have me to do? And here, in again, no uncertain terms, he's describing what Israel would do if they would come and worship him. At least in this moment, they're taking God seriously. There will be future moments that Israel will completely ignore the Lord and do what they want. But here, primarily because they're seeing fire and thunder and smoke and lightning and a trumpet's going to sound as God begins to, to speak, I mean, they're seeing this. And not only that, I mean, the mountain begins to shake, and the text tells us, I mean, they start, they start trembling a little bit. I mean, we would be scared too. And so they're not approaching God flippantly here, but what we should see is that, I mean, God's holiness has to be mediated. That's what's being conveyed to us. There has to be someone that stands between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of the people. And here, during this day, it's Moses. And God tells Moses to set limits around the mountain. And those limits are to mediate God's presence. You have the, uh, the holy God on one side. You have uh, a sinful people on the other. And Moses is the one chosen by God to sort of bridge the gap between the two and to mediate between them. Even though Israel had been consecrated themselves, God's presence still had to be mediated. And guess what, Trans Church? It's not any different today. God hasn't changed. What we're getting here is, is hints of how God deals with us. I mean, nothing has changed. God hasn't changed. God doesn't care about his holiness in the Old Testament. And then when we get to the New Testament, he says, hey, do whatever you want. He doesn't do that. God is always, and he's still a consuming fire, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And his presence needs to be mediated. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And out of that, God gives the law. That's, that's where the law comes from, that his law, that his presence needs to be mediated. And what he's showing the nation of Israel is, is what this relationship is going to look like. Here's my covenant with you, and he lays it out in a form of, of ten very specific laws that define that relationship. And so the Ten Commandments become the foundation for Israel's relationship with God. And for the, the Ten Commandments are actually the foundation for what will become over 600 laws that Israel will be, uh, will be told to confide, uh, to, to obey, uh, abide in. Uh, obey, rather. And those laws articulated, uh, are articulated throughout the four books of, of Moses. They start here in Exodus. We'll see more in Leviticus. We'll see more in New, uh, Numbers. And then Moses rehearses all of them over again in the book of Deuteronomy as, he, uh, as Israel prepares to go into the promised land and, of course, as Moses begins, uh, prepares to die. Uh, and, and there's three, three types of laws, really, that we're going to see uh, throughout the, the law. Uh, there's moral laws. There are ceremonial laws, and there are judicial laws. The moral laws are primarily the Ten Commandments, all right? So they're articulated in the next verses that we'll look at in Exodus 20. And the moral laws are laws that firstly orient us to who God is and how he is to be worshipped. But they also talk to us about horizontally how we are to get along with each other. Then you have ceremonial laws, and we see the ceremonial laws mostly in Leviticus. And the ceremonial laws will teach Israel how to worship, and we'll see uh, the institution of feasts and sacrifices, and uh, you have the, the, the making of the temple and the tabernacle, and all these elaborate details that go into how Israel is to worship a very holy God. And then we have uh, civil and judicial laws. And if you think about this, um, I mean, 
these are their national laws. And so some of them are, I mean, they are all particular to, to, to Israel. And these uh, uh, civil and judicial laws tell us uh, that God cares about justice and judgment. Uh, Israel, unlike America, is an actual theocracy. And so, uh, you know, we say we are a nation under God. They literally are a nation under God. And so uh, God is dictating the type of government that they would have. And we see that through all of these laws. But here's the key to the law. The law was given to Israel, right? Y'all see that, right? It was given to Israel, not necessarily to us. And so the question for us would be, all right, so what, what, as a Christian, New Testament Christian, what's the purpose of the law for me? Is there a purpose for the law for me? And everybody should nod their head and obviously say yes. All right, here's the third thing we should get out of our text. Through the law, God shows us what he's like. All right, we're going to cross over into chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. What you should notice there in Exodus 20, very, uh, the, the preamble, the introduction to the Ten Commandments, is that the law starts with God. Very often when we're reading the Bible, particularly when we're talking about the commandments of God, we, we start looking for, all right, what am I supposed to do and what am I not supposed to do? All right, and that's our entry point. God doesn't start there. God starts with the Ten Commandments, these um, these laws that reflect his character that he's given to his people uh, that describes their relationship him, to him, he starts with himself. Almost like he starts with, uh, with Genesis. Genesis starts how? In the beginning, God. God is defining who he is as he helps us to get to know who he is. Very much the same thing is going on here in uh, in Exodus as he starts the, uh, the Ten Commandments. And so uh, in these first two verses, basically, God is helping us to get to know who he is. And in these laws, God is communicating what he's like. One commentator said that the, the law functions as a mirror. You know how, I mean, you've got mirrors all over your house, probably, and the mirror reflects whatever is looking, looking at it. And so very much the law is firstly reflecting the character of God. We're meant to get a peek of who God is by looking in the mirror of his word, by looking in the mirror of the law. And I think that's important because we also get to, to see a peek of what God delights in. Um, these words aren't flippant, they're chosen, they're purposeful, and they're meant for us to know what God is like and what relationship, like, uh, what relationship with God is supposed to be like. And so um, think of this being, think of yourself and some of the relationships that you have and what it takes to love someone in relationship, whether that's a, a sibling, someone in your familial family, or, or a spouse, or a, a person that you just love. Uh, many years ago, this has probably been a couple of decades now, a very popular book was uh, the, the Five Love Languages. You guys remember that book? All right, so the Five Love Languages helped out a lot of us because our tendency is, is that I'm going to, uh, my tendency is, uh, I like these things, and I'm going to serve and try to love you out of the things that I like, right? We do that a lot of times. And so, say for example, I mean, I, I like giving gifts. I, I, do love, like, I do like giving gifts. Why, why do we have gifts this morning? Because Jeff likes giving gifts. I feel good about it, and I want other people to feel good about it too. But say uh, 
I mean, you, okay, I'll, I'll take your gift, but really, you want me to help. Like, you want me to, like, pick something up, come to your house, rake some leaves, do the dishes, take the dishes out of the dishwasher, those, straighten up the house, those kinds of things. Um, if I give you a gift, you might say, ah, you know, that was, that was kind of you, thank you. But you really feel loved when someone comes along and helps you. So when I shove that gift in front of you, it's not really saying I, I love you. And here's what God is doing for us in these commandments. He's actually showing us um, what it means to be in relationship with him, almost like a love language. A good habit that we should have when studying the Bible is this, to ask the Bible, what does this tell me about God? And that's what God is doing here. Um, But like a good mirror, um, God, through through the commandments, also tells us what we're like. And so he not only tells us what, um, he not only shows us what he's like, he shows us what we are like. And that's the fourth point that I think we should get out of the, uh, out of the commandments. Um, you know how a mirror, you hold it up, it shows you the image of whatever is in it. The law turns on us almost like you taking a selfie of yourself. Say your phone would be oriented this way, and your phone is going to take a picture out on like all y'all. Instead of doing that, I'm going to take a, a selfie of myself, and it's going to show me me. And I mean, sometimes... What I see in my selfie ain't pretty, right? That's why, that's why many of you take like eight or nine pictures and you pick out the best one that you're going to put on Instagram, right? That's what we do. But think about you in the morning, how you wake up and how sometimes what you see in the mirror is not pretty at all. And that's what the law shows us. That's what these commandments are doing for us. It's giving us the mirror of our lives, not just our external persona. And so a right reading and understanding of the law, it, it leaves us um, pretty frail because we should not, um, you can never read the Ten Commandments and walk away from it think, thinking, you know what, I look pretty good. You know what, I'm doing pretty good. Because here's what the, 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 the law leaves us with. Its standard is too high, and the mirror of the law as you're looking at the selfie of yourself in it, it's saying you're guilty and you're a lawbreaker. All right, so we can't, we're not going to spend a lot of time unpacking the Ten Commandments. If you are one that um, would like to get into this topic a little bit more, a year and a half ago, we did a sermon series called The Light of the Law, and we unpacked the Ten Commandments. I mean, one every week. I think it's an 11-week sermon series that we did as we looked at how the Ten Commandments applied to us. Today, we're just going to read it. I'm going to make one summary comment. Is that all right? All right, so break your Bibles out. We're going to read the Ten Commandments, starting at verse 1, going all the way through verse 17. We're going to read these out loud together. All right, y'all appease me. This is my love language. Y'all reading out loud together with me. All right, let's read. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. 
but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord. And on it you shall do, do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's, the word of the Lord. All right, so a couple of y'all reading that list, and you've heard it, I mean, you've read it before. Some of you have it memorized. My kids memorized the, the Ten Commandments. I wasn't pretty impressed. They memorized it. They probably could spout it out in the back of the room, even now, can't you, David? It's like, David's like, yeah. So here's the thing. I mean, we read lists like this, and we start to compare ourselves, and we're supposed to do that. We're supposed to compare ourselves like a mirror to God's word and see where we stand up, and perhaps your standard is pretty high. In fact, for many of these, maybe you might look at them and say, you know what, I mean, I, I think I do that one pretty well. I mean, I honor my mom and dad. I call my mom every Sunday. Uh, you might say, I, I never murdered anybody. I mean, I, I mean, who would do that? You get in prison for doing that. Perhaps you'd say that you've never coveted anybody else's stuff. You've never stolen anything. But here's Another take on, of course, Scripture interprets Scripture. And what we find in Scripture is that Jesus comes and he amplifies and elevates every one of these commandments in the Gospels, primarily in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through Matthew 7. And given what Jesus says about all of these, the takeaway from the Ten Commandments, our reading of the law, is that the mirror of the law, so the law acts as a mirror for us, right? It's the mirror of the law says that for each of these commands, you and I are actually guilty. The Bible calls us lawbreakers. And it goes back to my first point. The law doesn't save you. And so no one really gets to come to Exodus 20 and, and read these Ten Commandments and say, I'm good, I'm not guilty, because when Jesus amplifies these commandments, he's going to say, even if you haven't physically committed the act, check your heart. Because if your heart is guilty, that means all of you are guilty. All of you are, is guilty. And unfortunately, here's the thing, Transit Church, for all of these commandments, our hearts disqualify us. All of us are guilty. And so the, the law doesn't save us. And here's why. It's because like Israel, we're lawbreakers. And here's what the New Testament says. Paul in Romans 3.20, for the works of the law, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul is using the word justify. It's, the, it's a legal term that means that um, it means to be declared not guilty. Say you are, you're convicted of a crime. You should be punished for it, be put in jail. Instead, uh, the jury stands up, the head juror stands up and says, Your Honor, we declare this defendant not guilty. Like You get to go free. Here's what Paul is saying here. I mean, none of us get to read the law and get to say that. No one standing in front of God as the, as the judge of all the world, of heaven and earth, can say that they are not guilty. For, the, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin, and we are all guilty. 
sinners. And so Paul says, what the law does in our lives is hold up a mirror in front of us, and it shows us us, and it tells us that we are sinful lawbreakers. And so he's saying there's no one who can obey the law and even do it perfectly. There's no one that can do that save Jesus. And so we're all guilty. Our reading of the law should convince us that we are actually guilty. Another verse, Galatians 3.10, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse which written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Paul is not saying the law is a curse. He's saying, he'll say in other places that the law is beautiful, it's right, and it's good. He's saying you are cursed if you don't do all of it. And the, I mean, the, the key words are all of it. And no one can do all of it save Jesus. The law shows us what's wrong. But here's the thing. The law doesn't fix what's wrong. All the law is doing is diagnosing our problem. Um, Matt Chandler is the president of the Acts 29 Church Planning Network, of which our church is a member. Uh, he's also the pastor of the Village Church, and he tells the story of, uh, of one day standing in his living room and falling out unconscious, and he goes, to, obviously, to the hospital. He finds out that he has uh, a very large tumor uh, in his brain. He has cancer, and doctors, I mean, project that he doesn't have long to live. And so he, has an, he goes through an MRI, and uh, like an MRI is supposed to do, the MRI shows this very large tumor uh, in his brain. Now, here's the thing. Is the MRI good or bad? The MRI is good, right? What, what is the MRI doing? It's, it's diagnosing. It's telling, um, it, it's telling Chandler that, all right, you have this debilitating thing inside of you that's going to kill you. That's what the law is like. It points, it diagnoses, and it tells us the, the measure to which um, our, our lives are in jeopardy because of the sin that's, that's in us. And so, I mean, obviously, Matt Chandler's okay now. He's still living. But just like that MRI, the law gives us the depth and scope of our issue. The MRI is a good thing, and that's what the law does. It shows us what's wrong. But then again, in and of itself, um, the law can't fix you. It does nothing for the brain tumor that's threatening to kill you. And that brings me to my last point. All right, point number five. Through the law, God shows us we need a mediator. That's what this whole um, text is pointing us to. There's a holy God on one side and there's sinful man on the other. And just like Israel at Mount Sinai with the lightning and the smoke and the thunder, the trembling ground, and them needing a mediator between them and a holy God, it hasn't changed for us uh, uh, Changed for us either. We need a mediator just like Israel need a mediator. Did you notice in chapter 19 how many times Moses went and up and down that mountain? So Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets a word from God. He goes back down the mountain. He tells the people. And guess what? Then God calls him back up. All right, Moses, come back up to the mountain. He goes back on the mountain. He gets a word from God. He brings it back down to the mountain, and he tells the people. And um, that really what was what their relationship was like for a long time. And they needed that because they were sinful people and a holy God, and they could not come into contact with him. Moses served as that mediator. And it's an interesting response that they have uh, 
one of the times that Moses comes down from, uh, from the mountain. Look at verse 18. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where Moses was. And so, again, on one side, you got God. On the other side, you got the people sinning, being themselves, and you got Moses mediating the presence. But, I mean, what's being... um, What's happening here is the people's like, all right, so God, you're scary, and we've gotten used to Moses, and we'll listen to his words. So you just tell him what to say, tell him, tell him what you want us to do, and we'll do it. And I mean, lest we die. And I think that's the appropriate way uh, for them to, um, to to handle God. But. But here's the beautiful promise that we see echoed later on in Scripture. And this really is a beautiful promise to us. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. Just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horb. Horb is another name for Mount Sinai. On the day of the assembly when you, had, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. I mean, God is repeating Israel's words here in Exodus 20, verse 17. He says, and the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And of course, there was a local fulfillment of this. Joshua is the one that takes over from Moses. Moses does not go into the promised land. He's only able to look, look over it. In fact, Moses fails, doesn't he? Uh, at one point in the wilderness, um, God tells Moses to speak to a rock and therefore cause water to come out of it to provide water for the Israelites. And what does Moses do? He strikes it as God had commanded him to do a previous time. And God says, you're disobedient, so you don't get to to, to lead uh, Israel into the promised land. And so for the most part, I mean, Moses wasn't the leader that God intended to really save his people. God has always been the Savior. And here, obviously, it's pointing to a, a greater mediator. It's pointing to a greater Savior, a greater deliverer that stands not just between Israel and God, but stands also between us and God. Jesus will come along. And here's what he'll say, Matthew 5, 17. He he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have uh, have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In context, Jesus had been accused of saying that the demands of the law um, didn't matter anymore. Of course, he wasn't saying that. So what he's doing here is sort of setting setting the record straight. He wasn't telling the people that they did not need to obey the law then again, I mean, haven't you heard a lot of people say that? That, I mean, it doesn't really matter. God's super angry in the Old Testament. Jesus comes and now he's chill. And so we can really do whatever we want. I mean, he's just happy with us and loves us. But I mean, what did I say before? God has not changed. He's still the God who is a consuming fire. What's changed about the relationship? The mediator has changed. The mediator has changed. And that's the good news. 
There's absolutely no change in the holiness and the character of God or even the demands of God. There's just a better mediator between us and a holy God. And so Jesus does what the law demands. He fulfills it perfectly. He fulfills every requirement and he does it in our place. And so we can all go back to the Ten Commandments and we can read through the list of the Ten Commandments. And the first one says, have no other gods before me. And I mean, if you appear into your life, then very likely you don't have an idol in your house anywhere. But do you value your house or your money or your retirement account or even your family more than you value your relationship with the Lord? We might say that, all right, physically, I've never murdered anybody but here's what Jesus says. Again, he amplifies the law in the, in the Beatitudes. And he says, I mean, have you thought uh, illy of a person such that you wanted something bad to happen to them? Did, you, did someone get a promotion at work and, and, and you were jealous of that? And he's like, well, I, I wish they would lose their job. I mean, we, I mean, you tease it out. I mean, in our hearts, we, we sometimes do those kinds of things. But here's the thing. Jesus is the one that that, that does this uh, perfectly. Jesus doesn't violate any of these commands, and he does it not for himself. He does it perfectly for us. So Jesus says he doesn't get rid of the law. He amplifies it, and he amplifies it by going to our hearts, going for our hearts, and then he fulfills the law in our place. One more scripture, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And so what Jesus does perfectly uh, is fulfill the law in our place. He lives perfectly, and then he takes our punishment as if he's a lawbreaker. And then what does he do? He dies in our place. He takes our curse, the curse that the law uh, demands, and he gives us his blessing. One more, I, I lied. I broke a commandment. One more, one more scripture verse, Galatians 4, 4. This says very, something very similar to Galatians 3. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we, those who are guilty, I mean, just lawbreakers like us, might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And so Jesus doesn't just bear the punishment for our breaking of the law. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus comes and he lives completely. He lives totally. He lives perfectly. And why does he do that? Because we can't. Because in so many ways, we're sinners and lawbreakers, and we do that. We break the law completely, totally, and, 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 and perfectly through the way that we live our lives. And so Jesus resurrects and he ascends into heaven, meaning that God receives the sacrifice of himself in our place for our sin. And with that, he redeems us. Martin Luther calls this the great exchange. Jesus takes upon himself everything about us that's a curse. We're cursed because we cannot, we don't do all that the law requires. And guess what he gives us? He gives us all that he is. He gives us his blessing. He gives us redemption. Let me, let me conclude with this. Here's the beauty of what Jesus accomplished for you through the law. He's the great mediator now. We don't need Moses. We still have a holy God. We're still sinful people. But the profound mystery of the gospel is that when we profess faith in Jesus and what he's done, 
God sees us through that filter of, of, of Jesus who fulfills the law for us because we can. And that is what, that's your redemption, church. That's your redemption. So praise God for Jesus who fulfills the law totally, perfectly, and completely. And I mean, the, let me encourage you, turn in faith to him today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we are sinners and lawbreakers, but we know one who is not. And uh, Lord, um, help us to turn our hearts and our eyes to Jesus, that we might see him as he rightly is in all the ways that he um, fulfills the law for us perfectly, totally, completely. And he does it not for himself. He does it for us. Lord, we could pick apart these Ten Commandments and and see all the things that we do wrong. We could take these Ten Commandments and try and lift ourselves up and say, you know what, I'm not that bad, but I pray that you would, like a mirror, show us who we are. Show us, more importantly, our need for Jesus. And God, cause us to run to him. Because it's in him that we have our redemption. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. And amen.